Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. I'm really excited this week because we have a new sponsor on the show, Zendium Toothpaste. I was so excited when I discovered it and I cannot wait to tell you about it. So Zendium Toothpaste is different because it actually strengthens your mouth's natural defences. So... In our mouth, our greatest defense system is actually the oral microbiome. You know, just like our gut microbiome, which is a delicate ecosystem of good and bad bacteria. So Zendium uses natural enzymes and proteins to boost the good bacteria in the mouth, which is why it's so different, working like prebiotic, which protects your mouth naturally and reduces the bad bacteria responsible for dental problems. They have a kids and an adult range, both free from SLS, and Zendium are kindly offering 20% off for Motherkind listeners. So all you need to do is head to zendium.co.uk, that's zendium.co.uk, and pop Motherkind in at the checkout and you will get 20% off. So thank you so much to Zendium for the offer and for supporting me to create a weekly show like this one. This episode is also supported by Tony's. You might have seen the Tony boxes. They are the very cool audio player for kids. So it's a five inch soft cube that is basically indestructible, which we all know is very important. It's also totally screen free and cable free. What I love about my Tony box is that for Jessie's quiet time after dinner, instead of TV, she listens to a story just by popping a little Tony's figure that she chooses on top and the story starts. Then when I've put her to bed, I play her me singing to her, poor thing, that I've recorded into the box. It's amazing. And she has been dropping off so well listening to her Tony box. I think this is the perfect Christmas present. So head to the website, www.tonies.com. Have a look at them. The last orders for Christmas is on the 13th of December, but then you can order from Amazon and get it right up to the last minute if you're anything like me. So head to tonies.com, have a look and let me know what you think of it because I absolutely love mine. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host Zoe Blasky. I hope you are all really well this week. Dr Abigail Gewertz is a child psychologist, a leading expert on families under stress. She's a mother of four and the author of When the World Feels Like a Scary Place, Essential Conversations for Worried Parents and Anxious Kids. I don't know about you, but I've been navigating some tricky conversations with Jessie, who is my nearly five-year-old recently, particularly around coronavirus and death. It felt like for a few weeks she was asking me every day about death, and I'm sure you too have had to navigate some big and tricky conversations this year, particularly, you know, whether about coronavirus, death, race, the injustices, but seem to have risen to the surface this year which is why I'm so excited to share this episode with you. This episode is a little bit different than perhaps some of my more conversational episodes. 
I think of this episode more like a class or a workshop. It's really about how to have big conversations with your children about hard and scary things. And it links all from last week. If you listen to last week's episode with Kimberly Wilson, we were talking about how vital it is and what an important skill it is to learn to be able to hold our children's feelings and to help our children process and manage their big feelings and emotions. Well, it's perfect timing because this episode is really a roadmap of how to do that. Dr. Abigail talks us through how to have challenging conversations, how to hold really overwhelming emotions that our children might be experiencing based on what's going on in the world, starting as always with regulating ourselves first. I feel like these are really vital conversations that we're having on the podcast right now. So please do share. If you're listening to this thinking, I wish that the other parents in my life knew this information, knew how to handle these tricky conversations, please do share the episode. I say it every time, but the wisdom that we have of the guests on our show, I think really does need to be heard far and wide. So please do share it. And here is the episode. Well, Abigail, welcome to the podcast. I'm really looking forward to getting into this topic of having these essential conversations with our children when the world feels like a scary place. Your book is called When the World Feels Like a Scary Place. And where I wanted to start was you've worked with families in severe stress for 25 years. To me, This feels like the most intense year on a global level that I've certainly ever experienced. But I'm wondering, is that true or is that as a result of the 24-hour news cycle? Are we raising our children in a scarier world or does it feel that way because of our access to news and social media? Well, first of all, Zoe, it's a treat to be here. (laughs) Thanks for having me. It's really fun to have these conversations. When I wrote the book, I didn't think the world would feel quite so much like the scary place it does right now in the middle of a global pandemic. But I think your point about is the world actually a scary place or does it just feel like a scary place? And is that related to our relentless access to technology and the intrusion of technology into our homes? I think that's a really important question. I think there's two ways of looking at it. One is let's step out of 2020 and into, say, back into 2019. If we discount the last year or so, then I think it is pretty clear that it's the way we feel about the world rather than objectively the way the world is. So, for example, I believe it's the case in England, but I know it's the case in the United States that crime has been declining for about 30 years. And yet we don't feel safer. We actually feel more scared, more worried. In both England and America, anxiety and depression have increased markedly over the last 10 years. So is that just because of social media and access to technology? You know, technology probably has to take a significant portion of the blame, but I think there are lots of other things going on as well that we can talk about. If you go into 2020, I think it's a bit of a different story. Mm. And obviously, we all know why. And you say that parents matter now more than ever. And I think you called that the first chapter of the book. Why do you believe that? 
because parents never had such a hard time keeping the world at bay as they do now. Ultimately, that's why. And it can be due to a number of things. And sort of this gets us back to the technology. You know, the average age at which a child gets their first cell phone is about 10 years old. It's probably even less now. A 10-year-old in the past, even 10 years ago, wouldn't have had a cell phone and would have relied on his parents, his teachers, and maybe the kids on the bus to school to tell him what was going on in the world. And now, of course, he has the cell phone and the 12-year-old has... Snapchat and the 14-year-old has Instagram and the 16-year-old has Facebook and all sorts of things happen on those forums. I think parents are under an illusion that they might know more than they actually know when it comes to their kids using technology and social media. But there are other things as well. I mean, we're living in a world where there are vast disparities between haves and have-nots. In America, certainly, it's the largest gulf between rich and poor than it's ever been. We're living in a world where we have an existential threat of climate change. So there are some things that are not just technology related. Something that you said that I found incredibly powerful, I was thinking about this link between the news cycle and children's anxiety, which we know is on the rise. And then you said this thing, which I think I knew, but I had never linked them all together, which is that children really struggle with a sense of distance and time. So when we see something on the news that we know happened last year or last week, or actually it's being resolved, children experience that as new again. I mean, we don't have the news on in our house, but I know lots of families do have the news in their house. And I suddenly thought, my gosh, how must it feel for children who are seeing the headlines and experiencing it anew every time. So maybe let's start there in terms of some practical steps. Do you advise that parents don't have the news on in the house? Like how do we protect our children? The way they process things, they don't have the regulation. And I think that is such a missing piece for so many parents. I know it was for me and literally until a few days ago, it all clunked into place. So I think there are so many good things that you're saying. And so I'm going to disentangle some of them. Children develop incredibly rapidly in ways that we have a hard time understanding. It's as if we just get used to our infant and then our infant becomes a toddler and we just got used to them being a toddler and then they become a preschooler and then they're going to school and the days are long, but the time is short. And, you know, I joke that we had four children under the age of nine. And if we could only get all the kids out of the house with their (laughs) shoes on, fully clothed, If everyone had three meals and if we got a few hours sleep a night, that was a massive victory for that day. (laughs) You know, parenthood is so hard. And so who has the time to figure out, oh, so what exactly does my four-year-old, what's the parameters of my four-year-old's understanding? Luckily, you have people like me, you know, child psychologists around who like, that's what we do. Like we geek out on what kids understand at different times of development. But in the book, I do talk a little bit about a whistle-stop tour of kids' development because there are sort of things that can easily be conveyed that, I mean, I'm in favor of every time you go to the doctor, I know sometimes they do it, sometimes they don't, like getting a little cheat sheet that says, 
here's what's going on with four-year-olds or five-year-olds or 10-year-olds or 15-year-olds, because I think it is important. And I'll just give you one example. And it's unfortunately coming to start relief because of the pandemic, death. How do kids understand death? I mean, adults barely understand death. The fact is that very young children, even as old as eight or nine, simply cannot comprehend death. The idea that once someone dies, they never come back. This idea of irreversibility is such a difficult concept for anyone to understand. Kids just don't. And so how do you try and think about when someone close to you's died and you're trying to explain it to your five-year-old? And if you don't know that, that piece of information, that can really trip you up, for example. So that's one piece of it. The other piece is you talked about self-regulation, and that's one of the main things we teach our kids is to learn to inhibit their impulses not hit the kids when they want the toy, but ask for it nicely. How many times have we had to say that to our kids? That is one of the most important things in childhood. And by the way, it's a lifelong skill that we're trying to get. And that also impacts how and what we say to our kids, what their capacity is to regulate themselves. And we can certainly talk through that later because I don't want to go on and on, but This is what I loved about the book is that essentially, you know, it's about these essential conversations, which are a tool that parents can use and you break it down brilliantly to help us in an age appropriate way, bring that safety, security and calm. But what I particularly loved about the book and your teachings and the way you structured it is that you say we have to start with the parent because children process the world by looking at what our faces are doing, where our emotional regulation is that. So can you talk to that whole teaching in the book about why that's important and some of the ways that we can do that as parents? I call it put your own mask on before assisting others. That's what they tell you to do when you get on a plane. It's easy to say and it's hard to do because, of course, all of us have our own stories, our own past our own makeup, our own personality, just like we give our children the gifts of our genetics and the environment we bring them up in, we too receive the gift of both genetics and environment from our parents. In addition to that, we all have different experiences and those experiences can make us sensitive to certain things. So for example, If you went through an awful house fire when you were a child, it is extremely likely that any discussion about fire is going to really make you feel emotional. I mean, there's almost nobody who goes through a really difficult, traumatic or stressful event who doesn't have some kind of sensitivity to it after. And that's just one example of the things that we bring into the homes with us. So we're bringing to our children our own background, our own personality and temperament. And then we have theirs as well. And that's a big mixture. And by the way, we have our partners or spouses too. So when we sit down for a conversation with our children on an emotional topic, your child's best friend's mom, is in the hospital with COVID-19 and you are horrified because you didn't think COVID-19 would make it into your home. And it 
brings back these unwanted memories of when your own parent was really sick and you are literally blown away by your emotions. The question is, what kind of a conversation are you going to have with your child if you don't take a minute or however long you need to deal with your own emotions first? We have to do that. Well, you call these red light and green light. Can you explain what that is? <laughs> so here's what a red light conversation would be in that situation. Your nine-year-old comes home and says, mommy, mommy, Ruthie's mommy's really, really ill. You know, she's a nurse and she's got coronavirus and she's in the hospital. And you are shattered because you know Ruthie's mum really well and Ruthie is your daughter's best friend and you knew she was a nurse and you knew that she was on the front lines with the NHS and you couldn't even think about it so you say oh darling you know what Ruthie's mum is really tough she's going to be fine and anyway do you really know that she's in the hospital or is it that she's probably just working an extra shift and she got really tired and you give your daughter a big hug and you say it's all going to be okay come inside I'll make you a cup of tea and a biscuit now on the surface we're trying to comfort our child but what are we really saying to her we're saying your emotions are not real because actually not only is what you're feeling wrong because you don't need to be worried. Didn't we just say that? But also the mum's going to be fine. And maybe you even got your facts wrong. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> you know, I don't need to tell you that that's the sort of red light example that we wish we could dial back. We wish we didn't promise our child something. There's no way we could possibly have control over or follow through on. That's a maybe really different example. I'll just give one other one quick. This is one thing I give an example from the book where mom is in the supermarket with her three-year-old who's on her iPad watching, for what she knows, YouTube kids. And mom looks over when she gets to the till and she sees that her child is seeing something completely horrific and inappropriate. And she grabs the iPad and says, what are you doing with that? Now, she didn't mean to convey to her child that she's angry with him, but that's exactly what he sees. She is mortified and upset. Her emotions blowing her over ended up blowing him over in the process. So what would a green light conversation look like in those two <laughs> examples? Because I know the listeners will be thinking, well, hang on, I've done that. I know I've done that, both those yeah. things. So what would the green light look like? My friend said to me, how did you get the ideas for the red light conversations? And I said, well, hello, I've been parenting for 26 years, lots of opportunities. So yes, the red light conversations, sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're mortifying, and often we see ourselves in them. They're not meant to be a way of judging parents for parents to say, oh God, did that again? Oh, I can't believe it. I'm the bad guy here. Not at all. It simply is a way to say this could happen. And here's another alternative reality. So let's start with the most recent one first. You're in the supermarket with your three-year-old. You lean over her shoulder and you see, or his shoulder, and you see him watching something that is absolutely horrifying to you. And this time, instead of allowing your emotions to bowl you both over, you take a deep breath. And it could take you two seconds and you remember where you are and you make a decision about what you're going to do. You realize that if you snatch the iPad, it will look to your child like you're angry, 
you'll shock her, him and he'll realize that something big went on. You know that as a three-year-old, you're not even sure what he's interpreting from what he's seeing. So you distract him momentarily and you say, oh, look, I promised you that you could have some chocolate biscuits because you did such a nice job of wiping your bottom this morning or whatever it is. <laughs> and which chocolate biscuits do you want? And in the moment that he turns around to choose the chocolate biscuit, you slide the iPad out, you put it in your bag, and he might whimper, but he has not got any sense of your emotions. And then when you get in the car, you have the opportunity to have a conversation about what he thought he saw, instead of essentially in the first place where you snatch the iPad he realizes that he must have done something really bad or something happened that went really wrong. And often when we do that and we let our emotions get the better of us, afterwards, it's really hard to dial it back. So then we don't want to discuss it with them. We think if we forget about it, they'll forget about it. Of course, it never happens that way. If we go back to the first example where your lovely nine-year-old came in and is so upset because her best friend's mom is really ill, again, same first step. You just take a moment. You might even turn around and to have your back to her so she doesn't see the look on your face or the tears in your eyes or something. You need a moment. And what you say to her is something like, you know what, take your shoes off and come in. Let's have a cup of tea and a biscuit. Come in, sit down. You take a few deep breaths, you know, as you're filling up the kettle and then you turn back to her and you say, you must have so many feelings about hearing that. I can see in your face that your eyes look like they're sort of wet and you're looking down and I can see that your brow is really furrowed. And I know that to me, that looks like you're feeling worried or sad or can you tell me what you're feeling? And she might say, um, I don't know. I'm just so, I, I love Ruthie and I'm really worried about her mom and I'm sad for her. And what can we do to help her feel better? And, and so at this point, you might want to jump in and say, it's going to be okay. And I'm going to help you. And I've got an idea. And you're just going to, again, with the advantage of that breath you took, you're going to focus on the emotions because she told you she's feeling sad and worried. And this is your opportunity to validate what she's feeling. Again, you've allowed yourself to make it about her and not you. And so you say to her, I would feel really sad and worried if my best friend's mom was really ill. And you know, I was just a little bit older than you were than you are now, when one of my really good friends at school, her grandma passed away and it was really sudden and I was so upset for her and I felt so sad and worried when her grandma was really sick and then dying. And okay, so what you've done is you've said to your child, are these your emotions? What are you feeling right now? And that's a really important thing, what you're feeling, because that's a signal that tells us about what's going on in your head. And that's a really valid feeling too, because lots of people in your situation will feel the same way. And in fact, I did too when I was young. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, 
it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind. So we're moving now into the first part of our essential conversations. Fantastic. I'm gripped. What's the second part? So it's really important to take some time to sort of explore the emotions. And some kids are really going to be emotional. So it might be that she's sobbing and sobbing. And so you're going to talk about the emotions and then you're just going to help her contain them because, of course, no one likes to feel out of control. But you've taken time to validate them. And so you might say you know what, I think that we should just sit in front of the TV for a bit and relax a bit. Or she might have used the chance to talk about the emotions to help it really contain her. And so she's okay. And then you might say, you know, tell me what happened. Tell me how Ruthie was and what you heard from her. And this is your cue to just zip the lips, as the Americans would say, and just like really actively listen. So often we think we know what our kids are going to say and we jump in and we finish their sentences for them or we assume, okay, we've done one sentence and you sort of tune out and then you your phone's right there and put everything away and just listen to her because you might be really surprised at what you hear. And I think especially with a virus, there are things that kids are thinking that we don't want to hear And it's only when we really set aside our own stuff that we are able to hear them and then they're able to tell us the difficult and scary things they're thinking. And when a child comes in and someone close to her's mum is sick, there's no way she's not thinking, is this going to happen to me? Mm. Is my mum going to get sick? Is my mum going to die? Which is, of course, the ultimate existential fear of every single child. And by the way, every single parent too. And so it's a hard conversation. The idea is just to listen and just to listen to what she has to say and wait till the very end before you jump in. Just let her talk. And then when she's done talking, again, we want to jump in and give the advice. But I'm going to say just wait (laughs) because this is your special opportunity to help your child learn how to solve problems and be empowered, not on her own, but with your scaffolding and your support. She's told you that she's scared and she's sad for her friend. And so you want to help her feel less scared and less sad. But also she's told you that she wants to show her friend how much she loves her and she wants your help with that. And so the two of you are going to have a brainstorm on how she can help her friend know that she's loved and feel better, feel less sad and less worried. It's not going to take the format of you telling her. You're going to say, I know you have some ideas, so let's think about it together. I'll throw in an idea. I know that you love your rabbit and I know you only like to have rabbit in the house but that's one way that helps you feel less sad. What else do you think can help you feel less sad? 
and she'll start talking. And what you'll end up with is a solution that's been co-built. That's really our job as parents is to be our kids' best teachers to help build them so that they become able to solve life's problems. Yeah. And I think listening to you, I was thinking, you know, I've done lots of coach trainings, so I'm quite used to holding space, but I think it's incredibly challenging. It's incredibly challenging. What you're talking about sounds so simple. And I think particularly if in someone's background or history, and I think this is because this was mine, you know, I was the fixer and the rescuer and, you know, so always wanting to step in and fix and make it better and soothe other feelings because I wasn't taught about emotional regulation. I didn't have that modeled to me. So big feelings used to scare the life out of me and I would do anything to shut them down in another. I was just so lucky that I got to work with lots of amazing therapists like yourself and teachers and healers so that by the time I became a mum I could do it a bit better and I'm getting better at it every day but I'm just wondering do you find this when you're out there teaching this you know you've been teaching this 25 years day in day out do parents typically find this really challenging and if so are there any tips or tricks you know I tend to avoid tips and tricks actually but I think for this for learning how to hold space and regulate emotionally it feels so vital at the moment and yet to me it's a massive missing skill in society. I totally agree with you 100% and it sort of reminds me of the work that we do with our dads who come back from war I mean, we've worked with probably a thousand military families. And for the last 10 years, that's most of what I've done is work with families, amazing families. I get goosebumps every time I talk about them, where a parent has been sent to fight in Iraq or Afghanistan. Often, even if that person doesn't come back with post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, how can you be on the front lines of a war in combat and not come back with some residue of combat stress, trauma. So what we find in people who've been exposed to trauma is just a more severe, sort of a more extreme version of what we all struggle with in one way or another, which is that when something reminds you of something that happened in any way, a sight, a smell, a sound, just someone says something, a few words, we can literally fall off the deep end. And the way we can help ourselves is really there are two ways. One way is relentlessly practicing emotion regulation, whether it is through five minutes or 45 minutes of meditation. And I'm on the five minute end. That's what we teach our parents. Yeah, me too. Like two minute, 30 seconds, feel your feet in your shoes and your shoes on the floor two minutes, imagine leaves flowing down a stream and letting go of your thoughts and letting them fall, go down the stream or a 10 minute body scan or go for a run or do a yoga pose or pray, whatever it is. These are exercises that help us remember that we're here and not get stuck in our heads because that's ultimately what happens. We get stuck in our heads and then it's what they call the thousand yard stare that your child is tugging on your leg and you are somewhere far away in the awful things that happened to you or where you didn't have agency to do anything about it. So that I think is one really important thing that we can practice. There's no such thing as too much practice. It's the same as anything. You practice, you get better at it. And the good thing is there's lots of different ways, like some people use apps to help them 
with mindfulness meditation and other people you go to yoga classes and other people go for that five mile run, whatever it is. But the other thing is you can learn parenting tools. What we do is we teach simple tools that provide parents with a formula so that when you get into a really stressful event and for parents, the most stressful events are around conflict and discipline with kids, you have a fallback. So for example, we will teach timeout. Whatever you think about timeout, you know, some people hate it. Some people love it. Some people are, you know, whatever, don't care. But what it does is it gives you a formula and a formula means you don't have to think up a new response every time you need to discipline a child. Because when you have to think of something new, that's when your emotions can easily get dysregulated. But if you have something to fall back on, then that really helps with emotions. When I first started noticing that when my five-year-old was having big feelings, it was activating me and I was wanting to shut them down because they felt too big for me to hold. And I unpacked that and I've talked about it on the podcast a lot. And I found that scripts, just as you describe in the book, noticing the feeling, looks to me like you're feeling sad or angry, labeling the feeling for them or or could it be that you are just as you describe it in the book I didn't get it from your book so I didn't have it then but yes it really helped me it's like a process it was very helpful and I think it was very regulating for Jesse and what was incredible is when I started to do this emotional coaching which is what it is as you talk about in the book from coined from John Gottman her ability to regulate her emotions was staggering to me. I wouldn't have believed it had I not witnessed it in my own child. It was incredible because I think a lot of people feel like if I validate a feeling, and I've had people say this to me, if you validate anger, are you saying anger's okay? I mean, in my eyes, anger is okay. All feelings are okay, but are you there for making it last longer? There's all these fears about delving into feelings. And to me, that's because many of my generation of mothers were raised in the 80s, which was like stuff your feelings down era. Stiff up a lip. Stiff up a lip. So when we're told, well, actually, the most powerful thing we can do for our children is validate those feelings, lean into them, I think it brings up a whole load of fear in parents. Absolutely, 100%. And yet the research is overwhelming. I mean, John Gottman, Nancy Eisenberg and others who spent from the 80s until now studying what happens when we say to kids, don't be a crybaby, big boys don't cry, you don't need to be crying, all those sorts of things. We know that that, unfortunately, the message that our children get is what you just said, stuff my feelings. And Gottman talks about dismissing feelings, invalidating, even punishing feelings. I mean, I've sat in front of a dad who said to me proudly, I said to my son when he came off the school bus crying, if you come home crying tomorrow, if you don't beat that child who beat you up, I'm going to beat you up. What do kids learn? They learn that emotions are dangerous at the very worst And at the very least, to be ignored, to be misleading and to be stuffed, as you say. And conversely, we have good data. And then those kids are at higher risk for anxiety and depression. And then conversely. And addiction. Yeah. I mean, all kinds of risky behaviors, exactly. Mm. And conversely, if we can coach our kids' emotions, we are more able to protect them. 
It's so powerful. And I think if I could get one, I mean, there's many messages that I want to get on the podcast, but this would be one of them. And what you said in the book is so fascinating. Two things before we close. The first one is we spend so much time in our society teaching behavior and we spend zero time teaching about emotional socialization. And I wonder, do you see that changing? You know, you're on the front line of this stuff. And what are the impacts of that? We've already touched on some of them, because I think this is such a crucial point, because I see tons of parents, me included, focusing too much on the behaviour and not about what's underneath it. Yes, I think it's changing. And we have to give credit to this whole movement towards social emotional learning in schools. We've begun to realize, not a moment too soon, that children's readiness to be successful in school is not determined by whether they know ABC and one, two, three, but by whether they are able to sit down, pay attention, listen, share, not hit those kinds of things. And so we realize that social emotional learning is crucial. And I think schools are really taking the vanguard on this. But, you know, we never learn to parent, do we? No one makes us, you know, I have to have a license to have my dog, but I've never heard of anyone anywhere who needs to have a license to be a parent. And I do think it's the the emotion socialization, which is the ways by which we teach our children about emotion is one of the last things, actually, that we talk about as parents. You know, we're really good about talking about potty training and sleeping and behavior, as you said. But when it comes to emotions, we lag behind. And yet, These are such crucial signals of our ability to be engaged in the world and not be fearful and deal with our anger, etc. But we lag behind, don't we? Because you can only teach what you've got. You can't do emotional coaching if you are not connected with your own feelings. It's like an impossible task. You know, your first two chapters of the book are all about helping parents like you said, with the oxygen mask, but I think it's really nice full circle point that actually the first place to go with this is always our own ability to hold space for ourselves because it's impossible, right? To then try and do it for someone else. Exactly. We have to put our own mask on first. We've got to get our tools. I mean, that's my goal in the first two chapters, right? To give parents the space, not only to gather their own sort of refuel, but their own petrol, you know, but also to think about what they want. What are their parenting values? What are the things that in 20, 30 or 40 years time, they wish their children would be saying about what they learned from the parents? So yes, we have to be able to fuel ourselves up before we can help our children. Hmm. And before we close, I just think it would be really helpful for people who maybe can't afford to buy the book and look at the script. If you could talk through the essential conversation roadmap, including, which I thought was brilliant, the three questions to ask about whether it's the right time to have this essential conversation. I think that would be super helpful just to be really explicit in it and then we'll close. Absolutely. So the first thing to do is put your own mask on. When you're preparing for a big conversation, whether it's about coronavirus, whether it's about issues related to 
bullying or social media, whatever it is, inappropriate content or the first thing you have to do is respond to your own emotions. It can be as simple as a deep breath, the excuse that you need to go to the loo or fill up a glass of water for your child. That's what you have to do first. When you feel like you are able to then focus on your child, sit down, and it really doesn't need to be more than a few seconds. So deal with your emotions first. Don't let them blow you away. When you feel like you're grounded enough that you can focus on your child, turn and ask your child what he or she is feeling. Not in a sort of, hey, what are you feeling right now? I think I can read your mind kind of intrusive way. But in a way that shows your child that you're noticing what's on her face and you wonder whether what's on her face is reflective by feelings in her body, connecting things so that she has a chance to label what she's feeling. I'm feeling sad. I have a heaviness in my tummy. And you then get to validate her sadness. If you didn't take a moment to breathe, you might be tempted to say, you don't need to feel sad right now. There's something really happy that's going to happen. But no, you're focused on her. You've taken a moment and you can sit with her sadness and you can say, gosh, I see that you're feeling sad because your friend's not well and won't be able to play for the next week. And I remember how sad it was when the kids I really wanted to play with weren't available to play. So that's the next step is validating your child's feelings. And then you have an opportunity to sit down and listen. And sometimes you have to share. So this is what you're talking about. What are some questions to ask yourself before a big conversation? And it could be a conversation, for example, where you need to share some information about an illness, whether or not it's coronavirus or something else. And you have a nine-year-old and you're thinking about how much detail do I give my child? And so that's something where, again, let's stop, take a breath and think intentionally about what it is that we are willing to share and who is going to do that, right? So when there are two of you and you're co-parenting, it's worth having a discussion about who's the best person to lead the conversation. And then think about your child's sensitivities as well. When is this conversation best held? You don't have to have it immediately. Your child comes in sobbing. You can say, we're going to take some time, watch TV, have dinner, and you know what? After dinner is our chilling out time. Let's have the conversation then. It's better for you and your partner to get on the same page so that you both know what it is you're going to say. You wish you didn't have to have the conversation, but you do. And so why don't you get on the same page and think about what you're willing to say? When you have the conversation, this is the next step. Remember, first course of action is to listen. We call it active listening. Basically, for me, it means putting a few fingers over my lips so I don't have that urge to jump in with a reassurance or a there, there, or a distraction because I find it really hard sometimes to tolerate my own child's distress. My job is to listen to her. When she's finished talking, then is our chance to answer questions. And we've thought through how we're going to answer them. And I think often we're so worried that our children are going to ask questions about details about things like 
ventilators, for example, the details of someone who's ill. And really what they're asking is something much simpler. Are you going to be okay, mum? Are you going to be safe, dad? And so if we really truly just listen, we get to really understand what the question's about rather than making an assumption about it. And then finally, the last part of the conversation is helping our children, scaffolding them to be able to start solving problems on their own. And so you might start by making the goal statement, which is, let's talk a little bit about how you can feel better and what you can do about X to show your friend that you care for her and you want to help her. So that's the last step, but it's an incredibly important one because rather than giving bland reassurances, what you're doing is you're encouraging your child to come up with solutions and that helps her feel more empowered and less helpless. That's so helpful. Thank you for walking everyone through that. I know I found it really useful as well, even though I've, I've read the book a few times. The final question which I ask to every guest is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I'm going to preface it by saying that one of the things I did, because I'm a researcher, was I tried to find out how much time parents and kids spend talking every day. And in America, there's a yearly census that asks people how they spend 24 hours in a day. And for parents, one of those questions was, how many minutes in a day do you spend talking with and listening to your children as a primary activity? 80% of the people who answered that question, parents with children ages 3 to 18, said zero. The other 20% said a significant amount of time, half an hour, 40 minutes. But overall, that translates to an average of three minutes a day. So my gift would be a gift of 10 minutes a day, uninterrupted, no cell phones, no TV, no other big thing to do that distracts you, just to listen to and engage in conversations with your children. To me, that's how you build these essential conversations. Wow, that statistic is incredible. I know. Shocking. But also not surprising. No, because we're so distracted. The world that we live in, we're so distracted. There's so much stress. I mean, we could talk about this for for a long time as well, but it's not surprising given the, you know, the level of stress that most parents are under just trying to keep food on the table. And, you know, it's not surprising that that's one of the things that falls. That would be an incredible gift of 10 minutes of just fenced off time to connect thank you so much I've really loved this conversation and I would encourage everyone to have a look at the book where else can people find your work or learn more about you if they want to my website which is abigailgewertz.com a-b-i-g-a-i-l-g-e-w-i-r-t-z.com has actually has a couple of conversations on it so you don't need to buy the book to just see some of the conversations one is about the coronavirus you can go there and um, you can get the book anywhere that books are sold Great. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. Thank you, Zoe. It was really a treat. Appreciate it. So that's the episode. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. I hope that you really took comfort in the roadmap 
that Dr. Abigail shared with us and that you'll be able to practice it with your children in the coming weeks. Please do let me know how you get on if you do practice it. I think the one thing that I will take away from the episode is that so often in these big and challenging conversations with our children, we want to jump in and fix and maybe soothe, which is all so well-meaning, isn't it? But what I really heard Abigail say is the power in holding space for our children, the power of really listening and not being afraid of those silences when they can figure things out for themselves and in doing so, learn what it means to be empowered and resilient. Until next time.